what you guys are feeling, but I feel good about Sunday nights. Don't tell anybody else, but it's kind of my favorite service. Uh, it, is, it is really good to be here. Really good to be here. Uh, welcome. So, I've been thinking a lot lately about Paul. That makes sense. We're going through the book of Philippians. And I've been thinking specifically about his encounter with Jesus, his life before Jesus and his life after Jesus, which includes the transformation that he had because of what Jesus did in his life. And the more I was thinking about his encounter with Jesus, the more I'm thinking about my encounter, the transformation that, that Jesus had in me. So I've been thinking about my life before Jesus. And I have, I just kept thinking about this very random thought that's going to sound uh, super weird at first, uh, but I'm going to explain it more in detail, so bear with me. But I kept thinking about how life before Jesus uh, is like rock climbing. So I was into rock climbing, I was, I was about 19 years old, uh, and I was going to college in Phoenix. And there was a mountain, it's actually a rock, just a big rock, but they call it a mountain in Phoenix, uh, and it's called Camelback. And I knew a guy uh, that was into rock climbing, he had all the gear, and me and a couple of buddies, we would go with this guy every Saturday morning, and we would do some rock climbing. And it was a blast. And I was really into it. But I, when I started thinking about life before Jesus, I started thinking about how it was like rock climbing, but not in a good way. What if we, what's the whole reason behind climbing a rock? It's to get to the top, right? What if rock climbing, we never got to the top? So I kept thinking about that over and how like frustrating that would be. So I want you to imagine keeping that idea of life before Jesus, life without Jesus in your mind. Imagine, if you will, a cliff. Our lives, our entire lives are on that cliff, there's technical sections, there's easier sections, there's sections that we just, like, we're trying to conquer these areas of the cliff in order to reach the top. And as we conquer these certain areas, we feel good about that. We feel like there's success in that until we begin to realize that the higher that we climb, there is no end in sight. The higher that we climb, all we see is more cliff. And it's frustrating. There's areas that are very sketchy, we slip, we fall, we hurt ourselves, and we go up and we fall down. We go up, we fall down. And it's this, this, uh, this never-ending struggle, this never-ending climb, and there is no end in sight for that cliff. And so what we do in order to find some sort of meaning, some sort of purpose in the climb, then we begin to look at things uh, and we begin to gravitate toward things that are on the cliff. And maybe it is uh, pretty rocks. Like we begin to see these pretty rocks, and so we collect rocks. Uh, that we see these things like geological features that are interesting, and so we apply our, uh, our attention to these things. So we get into these things. Maybe it's caves, right? We, maybe we explore, we stumble on a cave or two on the way, and we get excited because a cave represents adventure and excitement. So... We go in, and what we're left with is feeling frustrated because the caves are actually very small and they're shallow. And all we find in there is darkness. There are sections of the cliff that are deceptive. They're, they're very deceptive. They're actually a lie because what they look like, they look like fun. They look inviting. 
But really what they are, they're a very slippery slope. The handholds that we see, the the areas that look very uh, safe, uh, we step out on these areas or we hold on to those rocks and they slip. We fall from these sections and we hurt and there is pain. And we slip and we fall and we hit other people and we cause other people pain as well. And as I imagine myself there, I feel like there's something more to my life than just the climb. I begin to realize there's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I can do to help myself get off this cliff. All the while, there is a voice of Jesus coming from above. And he's reassuring us. He's telling us that he can rescue us from the cliff. All we have to do is call out to him. All we have to do is cry out to him, Lord Jesus, save me from this cliff. And so in desperation, that's what we do. We cry out to Jesus. We call out his name, Jesus, I need you. I need you to pull me from this cliff. I need you to rescue me from that. And that's exactly what he does. He reaches down and he grabs a hold of us. And he pulls us to the top of this cliff that we couldn't reach on our own. But it doesn't look like Camelback Mountain. It looks more like this. You see? There's a whole nother world up there. There is another kingdom up there that he brings us to and he places us to the top. And when we get to the top, he holds us and we feel that love and we feel that sweet relief from the cliffs. We feel peace. He rescues us from everything that is associated with that cliff. He rescues us from ourselves and he makes us his own. We see in chapter 3... That Paul, before Jesus, is doing the same thing. He's climbing that cliff as well, not able to reach the top. He's clinging on to things like religion. Uh, He's reading books. He's become a Pharisee. Uh, He's memorizing scripture. He's persecuting the church, thinking that he's doing it for God. God made him with passions. But the application of these passions, they were skewed in some ways. And in some ways, like persecuting the church, they were grossly misdirected. So he reaches down. What Jesus does, while Paul's on that road to Damascus, Jesus reaches down. He grabs a hold of Paul. He brings him up to the top of this cliff. Paul believes that Jesus then is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, his Savior. And all the things that Paul had going for him, all the things, all his successes on that cliff all the technical sections that he'd climbed, he now says, I consider those things lost so that I can know Jesus, so I can reach to the top and be in his kingdom now and according to his purposes and plans. And I want you to keep this cliff in the back of your mind because we're going to come back to it. Uh, before we dig into our passage, which is chapter 3, 12 through 16, uh, let me pray for us. Father God, we just thank you so much for the truth. Uh, such an honor being able to study this week, take a look at this passage and the depth of it, and how much you have changed my heart, how much you have put into my mind, and how much my life has changed because of it. I pray that I just, uh, I'm able just to be receptive to your spirit. Spirit, I, we welcome you to speak tonight to all of us uh, through your word and through me. Uh, and we just ask you to soften our hearts to the truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
So Philippians 3, 12 through 16, Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. We're going to break down the passage into three main ideas that we're going to focus on. The first one is this, is take hold. So Paul has been a Christian when he wrote Philippians for about 30 years. And there was a lot of people at that time looking at Paul as if he's some sort of like Christian rock star. And they look to him. There's some of them that look to him. They think that they've reached some kind of spiritual perfection. And Paul says that is not true. I am not perfect. And what he does, he combats this theory that he is perfect. And he also combats some false teachings at that time, some of which we've already looked at. One is the Judaizers. So the Judaizers had this idea that spiritual perfection could be attained by the works that they did, by keeping the law. And Paul says, no one gets saved by keeping the law. It's impossible. We are saved by grace. And it's only by grace that we have been saved. There were some that thought that spiritual perfection could be attained uh, by a massing amount of knowledge. And the more knowledge that we get, we would reach this uh, spiritual perfection. And Paul says, despite all the knowledge, despite all the works that we do, despite even all the things that God does for us, you think about what God does for us, he purifies us from our sin. There's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There's Christ's righteousness that gets imputed to us. Despite all these things, we are not perfect. He says in verse 12, not that I've already attained all this or have already been made perfect. He says, I'm not perfect, but I continue to strive toward that. I continue to try to grab hold of Jesus, to take hold of him. So if we're not perfect, then what should we do? He says at the end of verse 12, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So we're gonna take a look at this phrase, make it my own. So if you, some of your Bibles, if you have NIV, it's translated, take hold, which is our main point, that first main point. Literally means to grab something and to take ownership of it. And Paul says it three times in just the five verses that we're looking at. So if you've ever played it or you know anything about it, capture the flag. There's two teams, typically out in the woods, uh, and the two teams go out and they, they set up these bases of operation. And on those bases of operation, they put a flag. It can't be hidden. It's got to be visible. And the one team, their objective then is to sneak over without getting caught, find that flag, and take it. Now, if you're the person that finds the flag and you don't get caught, you grab that flag and you run. And you, your goal then is to bring that flag back to your base, and when you do, you win. When you grab that flag... It no longer, that flag no longer belongs to the enemy. That flag belongs to you. Exactly the same thing. Just like in our analogy of the cliff, Jesus reaches down, grabs us, and makes us his own. In fact, this is exactly what the Bible says, that we are not our own. We're not, we don't belong anymore to the enemy. We don't even belong to ourselves Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 uh, and in chapter 7 as well, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So Paul says that because Jesus has taken hold of us, then we're trying to take hold and make something our own. 
He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What is that it? Or, to, or ask it in a different way, for what purpose has he made us his own? He's talking about the purpose of our lives as followers of Jesus. What did Jesus make us his own for? He lived the perfect life. He took all of our sins and took upon him all of our sins. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead so that through his resurrection, our dead souls would come to life as well through faith in him as our Savior. Why would he do this? Well, certainly to redeem mankind, to bring back that relationship between man and God so that when we die, we can spend eternity with God. What about while we're alive? The precious blood of Jesus that purchased us so that we are no longer our own, does that have any ramifications for us while we're alive? Absolutely. Romans 8.28 and 29, Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, and this is it, conformed to the image of his son. He grabbed hold of us and he made us his own so that we could be free from our sinful nature and become more like Jesus. Not by keeping religious guidelines and principles based on a love relationship between us and God. That he would begin to change us from the inside out so that we would get to know, to get to know him. It's a foundational truth for our lives as followers of Jesus. That Jesus grabbed hold of us and he purchased us with his precious blood. That he made us and he saved us to be like him. And then Paul says in verse 13 and 14, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And here we find the heart of our passage. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul loves to use sports metaphors when he's dealing with uh, things like spirituality, when describing spiritual progress. Uh, he talks about boxing. He talks about wrestling. He talks about the games, which is something similar to the Olympics in 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, but his favorite by far is the foot race. Galatians, or uh, 1 Corinthians 9.24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Galatians 2 says, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. And in Galatians 5, he says again, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And in 2 Timothy, he says, I fought the good fight. I've run a good race. And here in our passage, Paul is using words to describe that same imagery of a race. He's talking about straining forward and pressing on. The picture he's painting is of a runner straining all their muscles bending forward, pushing forward, trying to get to that finish line with laser-like focus on the prize, on the goal, to reach the prize, to press on toward the goal to take hold of Jesus because he has taken hold of us. The second main point is we're to press on. And we see in our passage a couple of times these words, press on. And there's just one word in Greek. It's dioko. It means to rapidly and decisively move toward an objective or to earnestly desire to overtake. Paul uses the word twice in our passage. Verse 12, he says, I press on, I dioko, to take hold. In verse 14, 
He says, I press on, dioko, toward the goal. And this is interesting. It is the exact same word that he uses in verse 6 when he says, as for zeal, persecuting, dioko, the church. When I was 17, that's when I became a Christian. And I didn't know anything about anything to do with the Bible or about Jesus. All I know, I was, I was just stoked to have Jesus. I just wanted him in my life, uh, and I was just, I was excited for it. I had energy about it, but there were some things that I did that I continued to do uh, from before I knew Jesus, and one of those things is I used foul language, not at church, uh, not at home with my dad, uh, but I was going to Hudson's Bay. Uh, and one day, my best friend, his name was Brent, he went to the youth group with me, and one day, out of the blue, he just says to me, at, in school, <laughs> he just goes, why do you curse? And I just thought, like, what a weird question. I could, I, I've never been asked that question before, and I didn't have a response to it, and so I didn't say anything. Uh, I just pretend like he didn't say anything, but the question stuck with me. And I kept thinking about it. The more I thought about it, the more the Spirit just stirred in my heart about what I was doing with my words. It's like I'm using all of my energies for something that is shocking or something that is vulgar or something that tears down. And the Spirit then began to, to, to make me realize that those energies then could be redirected, right? Redirected then to words that would encourage Words that would build up. I should invest my words, not squander them. That's what I was thinking. To redirect, to reinvest those things into something more important. And on the road to Damascus, God takes Paul's passion that he's using against the church and against Jesus, and he redirects his passion to building up the church and to loving Jesus. And Paul's use of this word dioko made me think that we are created by God to have interests and passions, aren't we? That's, that's how we're created. That's, that's why we get fanatical about things. That's why we get obsessive about things. But when we focus these things, when we focus these passions that we have and we use our selfish desires or we use things like our culture or our feelings, then what is the result is that we lack aim and we lack focus. And we miss what God has for us because we're just grabbing at anything that would look like it would have meaning or purpose to it. And we see this on the cliff. These are the areas that are like pretty rocks, geological features. These are the caves. Right? They represent things like sports, like hobbies, education, jobs, playing an instrument, screen time, like social media or playing video games. Looks like adventure, excitement, entertainment. These things are not bad in and of themselves. But they steal what God has for us and why he saved us when we apply our passions to them and grab hold of them instead of grabbing hold of Jesus. We also apply our passions to sin and rebelling against God. Those are the slippery sections of the cliff. Those are the areas that are deceptive. They look inviting. They look fun. But all they do is they hurt us. They hurt others. We pour our passions into checking boxes striving toward the top of the cliff by the works that we do, but we never actually reach the top of the cliff. We desire love and peace and rest and joy, but our weaknesses and our ignorance, it frustrates our efforts. And we're left feeling exhausted. 
And then Jesus grabs hold of us. And he delivers us from the cliff, and our dead souls are brought to life. Then it's Jesus that defines the meaning of our life and redirects our energies, redirects our interests and our passions and our obsessions to true and ultimate purpose of life, purpose defined not by us, a purpose defined not by our culture, but a purpose defined by the God of the universe. Jesus pulls us to the top of this cliff, to the top of this plateau, shows us a new world, shows us his kingdom. He sets us free and makes us his own and then says, look at this world before you and I want you to run with me. I want you to run away from the cliff. I want you to run with me and I want you to run in the opposite direction of this cliff. He says there's a finish line. And each step that you take with me to that finish line, the more you step with me, the more you run with me, the more that you will know me. And the more you know me, the more you will love me. And the more you love me, the more you want to keep in step with me. Paul says in verse 6 that I used to, using the definition of dioko, he says, I used to earnestly desire to overtake the church with the intent to destroy Now in our passage, Paul earnestly desires to overtake or to run with the intent to embrace the likeness of Jesus, to know him fully, and nothing is going to prevent him from doing that. That's press on. Our last point is move forward. So in verses 13 and 14, we'll take a look at it one more time. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So how do we abandon the cliff? How do we run with abandonment to Jesus and with Jesus to press on, to strain forward no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the distractions may be? We're going to pull out four nuggets of wisdom from what Paul says in these few words. The first thing that he says is we need to have a healthy dissatisfaction. He says, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Paul longs to lay hold of the fullness of this life in Christ. He's unsatisfied until he does. So we took the kids uh, out looking at lights at Christmas time. So Nina's six, Max is three, and Max, he is, uh, he hears the word enough all the time. Mom and dad always tell him, Max, that's enough. <laughs> so he, uh, he doesn't say enough. He doesn't, like, he thinks the word is called enough. He is called enough. So we're out, and he becomes uh, this Christmas-like critic, we're going along, and we're going out. This is like in Washougal. It's 157th out there. It's really done well. We're going through there, and there's a lot of oohs and ahs and woes. Uh, and then we get past that section, and then it's just like kind of like, ah, some houses are decorated and some houses are not. And so Max in the back seat, he's back there, and he, 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 I can hear him. He goes, not enough. <laughs> Next house, not enough. And then he gets to the house where it's really nice, and instead of going, whoa, then he'd say, that's enough, right? <laughs> Paul is basically saying then it's not enough. It's not enough. How far can we go in knowing Jesus? There is no limit. Paul says every morning I wake up. How far have I gotten in knowing Jesus? It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, it's not enough. I want to know him more. I want to run with him more. I want to keep in step with him more. You think about 
Jesus, he's infinitely loving. He's infinitely kind and compassionate. He's infinitely patient. Isn't it intriguing to think about how close to Jesus that we could get in this lifetime and then what God could do in our family, in our friends, in the body of believers that we have here through us because we look more like Jesus, not because we're trying harder. What would our personalities look like the closer that we got to Jesus? It's exhilarating if you think about it. What would our relationship with Jesus look like? It starts with recognizing that we are not there yet. A healthy dissatisfaction that says each day that it's not enough and that we want more Jesus and less of us. The next one he says, in order to become more like Jesus, to keep in step with him, we need to have a single-minded focus. He writes, but one thing I do, and the words I do, you don't find that in the Greek. Paul didn't write I do in there. He just wrote, but one thing. And I love that idea. This, uh, this, like he's writing this letter, and the Holy Spirit is bringing to the, him ideas in these words faster than he can write. And he's writing it down, and he just says, like, but one thing. Press on toward the goal to keep in step with Jesus, to know him and love him, this one thing, singularly focused. Each morning when we wake up, one thing. Each person that we come in contact with, we remind ourselves there is just one thing. Every thought that we entertain, every decision that we make, every breath that we take, it is one thing. Proverbs 4, 25 through 27, Solomon says, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil, no distractions, singularly focused on him and becoming like Jesus. Next he says, forget what lies behind. Forgetting what lies behind. To run with Jesus, we need to forget what is behind, and this is not about forgetting the past. There's a lot of wisdom that we can glean from from past experiences, from past uh, successes and failures. He's not talking about that. Forgetting what lies behind is by leaving behind things that would hinder us in knowing Jesus and running and following in his steps. Things like guilt of past sins. We're to learn from our mistakes, but the guilt from those things, they're not to control us. They're not to weigh us down. Another thing we're to leave behind are all the distractions that we found on that cliff. Things of this world should not divide our loyalties. They should not divide our trust. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. We're to forget what lies behind. And finally, he says we're to strain forward. So Jesus rescues us from this cliff. And he wants us to run, to strain forward, which means to stay away from the cliff, to run from the cliff and run with Jesus. And here's what I find that many of us are tempted to do, including myself. We have all this energy. We have all this passion. We have all this excitement. God has given us everything that we need to run, and we begin to run. But Jesus, this is the cliff. Jesus is going this way, and we get so excited, and we start to run, but we're running along the cliff because we want to keep an eye on Jesus. We want to follow Jesus, but we also want to stay close to the cliff. We still keep our eyes out for those pretty rocks, those interesting caves, because we think maybe there's something that I missed. Or what happens a lot of times is we dilly-dally, we stall out. 
We hang out. Jesus says, come with me. Come, run with me. And then we just loiter and we hang out because our attention is on the things of this cliff and all the distractions that come with it. Galatians 4, 8, and 9. God says to us, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? The weak and worthless elementary principles of the world that enslaved us, that's the cliff. Why would we gravitate back toward the cliff like we so often do? And I think one of the reasons is that we're just familiar with it. It feels safe to us. So I think another reason is that we want to run with Jesus, but our trust is divided. The person who can run with Jesus with reckless abandon is the person who completely trusts Jesus. Doesn't trust ourselves. Doesn't trust anything to do with the cliff and all the unmet expectations and broken promises that it delivers. Trusts Jesus and runs with him. And the closer that each step that we take away from the cliff and with Jesus, then we begin to realize that Jesus is good and Jesus is faithful. He says, just taste and see that I'm good. And the more we do that, the more we realize there is nothing on this cliff for us. There's nothing but pain and suffering and unmet expectations and broken promises. We're here we're to forget what is behind and move forward to the goal that God has for us, which brings us to something to do. Our something to do is there some area of your life where God has been leading you to live for him in a new or renewed way? If so, what is it and how will you follow him by faith this week? So I'm running out of time. So we're gonna touch on some of the ways, uh, some practical ways, not in depth, uh, but really quick, we're, gonna, we're just going to blaze through them. Uh, they're in your notes, uh, and I encourage you to take that with you, laminate them like Bob says, and put them on your fridge. Uh, first thing that we should be doing is we should be dealing with dead weight. Hebrews 12.1 says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Any weight that we're carrying... It's because of us, and we need to identify those things, things like sin or, or relationships that are broken. Uh, we need to confess our sins. We need to ask for forgiveness. Relationships that are broken, they need to be made right so that everything that would weigh us down, that would keep us from running with Jesus would be taken off. We need to get rid of that useless weight, that dead weight. A couple other things. The Word of God. Joshua 1, 8, and 9, I love this passage. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. To fight the good fight, to run the good race, to press on to the goal, which is Jesus. How do we do this with success? How do we know which way to go? How do we keep our eyes on Jesus? We meditate on the word. And we let it not depart from our mouth. I encourage you, as you're reading the Bible this week, just gravitate towards something that the Lord is leading you to, a phrase, a word, a verse, and let that stick with you through that day. 
Because then you can think about it. You can talk about it. You can begin to uh, center your conversations around it. You begin to encourage one another with the promises that are found in it. You can use those words and those phrases and those verses to pray, which is our next main point, is that prayer is what we need. Because what we're talking about here, these things are supernatural. These are not naturally occurring in our heart. They're not certainly not naturally occurring in our society. We need to be praying as much as we can. God, stoke the fire in my heart. Make me passionately desire you to keep in step with you. And we should take every opportunity to pray. Day one is coming up on Friday. I encourage you, take that opportunity. Devote it to the Lord in prayer. We need community. <clears throat> we need to be encouraged one another. This race, this run that we're, uh, that we're on with Jesus, it's not a competition. We look out for one another. We encourage one another. We're going to be careful with our thoughts, and this is a big one, and I'm not going to spend very much time on this one at all uh, because what we're going to do is we're going to be spending a whole lot more time on our thoughts in the next coming weeks. There's so many good things coming in Philippians. I'm so excited for these things, but the reason it's for our thoughts is because our thoughts drive our behavior. How do we follow Jesus? We keep our eyes on Jesus. How do we keep our eyes on Jesus? We keep our thoughts on Jesus. So let me ask you, has Jesus taken hold of you? Has he made you his own? If he has, then he's invited you to run with him. There's this upward call, this upward call that makes us earnestly desire to run and to embrace the likeness of Jesus, to run with him, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to him and what is ahead, to press on to the prize that awaits us, the prize, the long-expected day when death will not hold us down, when we see our Lord face to face, and when we do, we will see him, and the scripture says when we see him, we will be like him. It will be the fullness of our salvation. It will be the fullness of knowing Jesus. Let us run for that now. The cross before us and the world behind us, and no turning back, no turning back, Let's pray. Oh, Father God, thank you so much for Jesus, for the deliverance that we have in him. We want to be, be passionately striving and pressing on to Jesus in every way. Every morning we wake up and there is just but one thing on our minds, and that is how we can become more like Jesus to love him more, to know him more. Stir that passion in us. Give us strength and wisdom throughout our day. Help our minds just dwell on these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.